0: This podcast is a production of WCWP. LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs. Listen live or support by visiting wcwp.org. This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, history, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Professor Ruby Blondell. She is a classics professor, the Byron W. and Alice L. Lockwood Professor in the Humanities at the University of Washington. Her latest monograph, Helen of Troy, Beauty, Myth, Devastation focuses on the threat of female beauty and Helen as an emblem of constrained female agency in Greek myth and literature from Homer to Isocrates. In addition, she has written the play of character in Plato's Dialogues, as well as Helping Friends and Harming Enemies, a study in Sophocles and Greek Ethics. She will be joining us to discuss the power and aura of Greek mythology's most beautiful woman, Helen of Troy. The face that launched a thousand ships, the woman that set nations against each other, the symbol of sin, the pinnacle of womanhood in all its good and bad, pining victim, dog-faced whore. Not one of these ideals can quite pin her down. From Homer onward, writers, poets, and thinkers have wrestled with Helen, and none of them won out. So I want to welcome Professor Blondel to the show. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Letter of Liberty.
1: Thanks so much for asking me.
0: So, what was... Your interest in Helen of Troy, what drew you to her, this enigmatic Greek character, and would you like to explain to our listeners what she is exactly?
1: Well, I don't think anyone can explain what she is. Uh, you Actually, your introduction was very eloquent in explaining or uh, recounting some of the many things she has stood for. Um, as for my own interest, I started to get interested in her was partly through teaching the Iliad, I would ask the students, to put it simplistically, whether they liked Helen or not, whether they thought she was a positive or a negative character, and the students were split down the middle. Half of them, roughly, would say, she's an innocent victim of the patriarchy, nothing is her fault, and the other half would say, she's a slut and a bitch and a whore, because that's exactly what Helen says about herself. And I thought, well, if they're reading this character in these diametrically different ways, there's got to be something going on here. And I'm interested in taking another look at it.
0: Yes. I mean, as for her birth story, it's very fascinating. According to the Greek legends, we have this woman named Leda. And then you have Zeus transforming himself into a swan. And then, of course, Zeus has his way with Leda. And from that affair, we have the birth of Helen and Clytemnestra. Helen and Clytemnestra are sisters and as we know Helen is married to Menelaus and Clytemnestra is married to Agamemnon and Helen and Menelaus are in this marriage then this Trojan prince Paris comes in and seduces her and takes her away from Sparta and starts and basically takes her to Troy and then of course the whole 10-year Trojan war starts because of this affair and the so-called rape of Helen in the sense of rape being kidnapping and then, of course, we know where it goes from there. And in the Iliad, she's introduced in this way. She, being Iris, found Helen in her chamber. She was weaving a great cloth, a crimson cloak of double thickness, and was working in the many trials of the Trojan horsebreakers and bronze-clad Achaeans, trials for which her sake they had suffered under the hand of Ares. So what do you think of that, Professor Blondell?
1: you mean as an introduction to Helen. Um, A couple of things about it are really, really interesting. Um, First of all, we've had several books already. This is book three. We've had a lot of discussion uh, of the quarrel among the men and how men are fighting over women, which is what men tend to do in Greek mythology. Uh, But in book three, we go onto the interior of Troy and we meet the domestic characters, that is to say, um, not just fighting men, but women, children, old men, and so on. And one of them is Helen, and she is the cause of the entire war. Um, In the bit that you just read out, she is weaving. Weaving is the characteristic activity, the sign of a good woman. It's like um, a a domestic – it shows your domestic skill and your participation in the economics of the household – Uh, It's what a good woman does. So one of the things that's interesting about Helen in the Iliad is that she is presented not as a bad woman. We might think she would be um, presented uh, negatively as the cause of the war, but she is presented in the way that um, a Greek audience would expect a good woman to behave. Uh, What's also interesting is the content of her weaving. She is weaving a picture, which is, in antiquity, um, uh, women would highly skilled women would weave pictorial tapestries. Or they're not really tapestries. They're woven fabrics um, showing figures of various events. And she's weaving a picture of the war of which she is herself the cause. Uh, the same, exact same lines I use to describe the war that I use to describe her weaving. So this is an example of how Helen in the Iliad particularly is a very self-aware character, much more so than most of the characters, except I would say Achilles. uh, She knows, she's aware of her own significance. The fact that she's weaving her own story shows her as somebody who is, in a sense, in control of her own narrative.
0: Yeah, and since you brought up Achilles, I was almost about to bring that up as well, because Helen and Achilles stand out in the Iliad as perhaps the two most beautiful persons in the whole poem, in a sense, because Helen and Achilles are, in a sense, very connected to storytelling and poetry. Helen, of course, in the weaving, and then, of course, Achilles in his singing in Book Nine, where he's singing of the songs and deeds of men.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a, a connection between Achilles and Helen that is under the surface. It's it's brought out later, in some later versions. Um, but if you think about it, he is the epitome of warrior masculinity whether you like him or not he is the ultimate man he is a lot of people don't know that he's the most beautiful of the greeks as well as the strongest fighter helen on the other hand is the ultimate woman she's the most beautiful which is the female equivalent of being a powerful warrior because beauty is what gives women their power their power over men specifically so in a sense achilles and helen should be made for each other But if they got together, we wouldn't have the Trojan War, because you can't imagine Helen walking out on Achilles. In my imagination, they would be the perfect couple, so we wouldn't have um, the Trojan War story if they were an item. That's my take.
0: Yeah, and they also are very good speakers, because in the Homeric poems, you generally have to be a good speaker. You should be a doer of deeds and words, and that's almost very contrasted to the idea of mute beauty, or mute masculinity that sometimes appears in an American movie or so, because American films, for some reason, seem to have a suspicion of the eloquent that British theater doesn't quite have.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's a different conception of masculinity. And one of the things that bothers me about a lot of modern renditions of the Trojan War story is that Achilles is often presented as just a British thug. And granted, he is a mighty powerful and violent and destructive man, but he has also got depth and eloquence in Homer. And that's something that usually goes missing, I find, in modern renditions.
0: Yeah, and it's good that we're talking about Achilles, of course, even though this episode was intended to focus on Helen, because both of them are, in a sense, the main characters of the whole Trojan War episode in the Iliad. And speaking of Helen in the Iliad, she's basically depicted as a in a sense self-shaming herself. She calls herself "kunopidos" or dog-faced or in some renditions it's called shameless slut or whore or bitch that I am. It's its almost telling. And then Emily Wilson's review of your monograph basically shows that Homer's Helen is a good woman by talking about how bad she is. And do you think that's uh, an accurate way of portraying how the Iliad portrays Helen?
1: Yes, that's um, what uh, one thing I was trying to A point I was trying to make in my chapter on the Iliad is that, uh, remember, I started out talking about my students, and half of them believed Helen when she said she was a bitch and a slut and a whore, and I think they should believe her, because I think she's genuinely feeling shame, but I think that feeling shame for the Greeks is a characteristic of a good woman, because it's a very patriarchal and very sexist society, and It's preferable for a woman to go wrong and be ashamed of it because that knows that she's in her place. My favorite example of this is uh, in Euripides' play Medea, where Medea, as probably many of you know, she um, kills her own children to get back at her husband because he's cheated on her. And she presents herself as this weak and fragile woman. She cries, she weeps, she says she's embarrassed, And it's all a way of manipulating Jason. She's not like that at all. But if you're a Greek woman and you can show repentance and shame, then that reassures your audience that you're behaving the way a good woman would, because a bad woman is shameless. And that doesn't mean that Helen isn't genuinely ashamed in the Iliad, but it means that her language is more powerful than it might seem for various different reasons.
0: Yeah, and then in Helen, in Book 6, when she's talking to, of course, Hector, and then this brings me to another point. Hector is the only one who seems to treat her well, and also Priam, of course. In Book 6, she says, Brother-in-law of me, and evil-thinking dog who strikes cold fear, would that on the day when first my mother gave me birth, some foul-weather storm of wind carrying me has borne me to a mountain or a swelling wave of the tumultuous sea, where the wave would have swept me away before these deeds had happened, But since the gods have so decreed these evil, that would I were the wife of a better man, a man who knew what righteous blame was in the many reproaches that men make. But her rationale, she also brings that we're going through this because we will be a song for the future generations, which tells us something not only about Helen, but also of the gods, which is that the sufferings that the gods bring upon them, remember that it was Aphrodite who granted Paris Helen, even when Helen was already married, it's the gods don't really care as much about humanity and then Helen is part of the whole mechanism of fate but at the same time in the Iliad she gets a sense of agency which is not always present in later renditions of Helen and it's also a more complex portrait as a result.
1: Yes, now that passage that you just quoted brings up so many different issues. Um, not sure where to start. Uh, regarding the gods, The most striking passage, one of the most striking passages in the Iliad is when Helen is um, confronted by Aphrodite, remember that passage, where Helen is on the wall, they've just had a duel between her ex-husband Menelaus and her current husband Paris, and Menelaus is basically one, but Aphrodite, the goddess of sexual desire, saves Paris and takes him away to their, uh, their bedroom. And then she comes in disguise to Helen on the walls of Troy and says, hey, Paris is waiting for you. He's looking gorgeous. He's in bed um, waiting for you. And he's just come from the battlefield, but you would never know that. He looks as though he'd just come back from a dance. So that tells us about the um, attraction of Paris. It's a sexual attraction. But Helen can see through Aphrodite. She knows that she's trying to lure her to reenact her shameful behavior. And Helen yells at Aphrodite. It's a really extraordinary passage. She says, well, if you like Paris so much, why don't you go sleep with him? Give up your godhood and come down here and sleep with him. And Aphrodite, who is of course a goddess, gets really pissed at him, her, and, um, and threatens her. She says, I'll stop loving you. I'll stop protecting you. You better go and sleep with Paris. And so Helen does that it's very easy to see that as taking away Helen's own agency. And this is how you know many modern people react to it. Well, a goddess threatened her, so it's not her fault. But it's a bit more complicated than that, because according to Greek thinking, the, the gods don't make you do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. The gods represent, among other things, your own desires. So when Aphrodite puts pressure on Helen... That's telling us also that Helen actually has the desire to go sleep with Paris and she actually makes that choice, even though we as the audience can see um, the presence of the goddess putting pressure on her.
0: Which brings me to Paris because normally in some modern traditions he's always seen as a coward because of course he's a pretty boy, he carries a bow and arrow instead of the traditional manly spear and sometimes even Hector berates him for being cowardly and just a pretty boy but at the same time I see him in various instances of the Iliad fighting in battle and then of course the Iliad depicts him first, he's the one who's going out first Of course, he runs away when he first sees Menelaus, who's really angry after all these 10 years. And remember, this is Paris dressed up all ready for war, so he doesn't exactly run away from the battle as he does in the Wolfgang Peterson movie Troy, where he's fighting with Menelaus, and then he runs after being beaten.
1: Yes, in in Peterson's Troy, he's really a miserable specimen. Uh, I think you're exactly right. The thing is, if you're Homer, if you're in the Iliad, and you are a hero, and hero meaning a warrior on the battlefield with a name and a lineage, then you're never going to be completely scum. Paris is part of a heroic family and lineage. He is very good-looking, obviously, but to be good-looking as a Greek, you've also got to be a, a healthy and strong manly man, like we were talking about with Achilles. So the thing with Paris is he, he doesn't have a good attitude, He's, um, when, he when he does fight, when he chooses to fight, he does a pretty good job. Not great, but a pretty good job. But he would really rather be in the bedroom. When Aphrodite whisks him away off the battlefield and deposits him in his bedroom, that's where he really belongs. And Hector comes in there and finds him essentially polishing his armor. And you have to put that in the context that everybody else in Troy, or the other men, are out on the battlefield fighting and risking their lives and bleeding. Why? Because of Paris and what he did. So he's in there polishing his armor. And eventually, Hector gets him out onto the battlefield. And then once he's there, he he does fight pretty well. But he doesn't take that kind of active responsibility of, um, you know, charging out into the front line of battle. So by Greek standards, he is, in fact, a coward. But he's not the kind of really lame-ass coward that you get in a movie like Troy.
0: Yeah, and then again, he did. it did take some balls to take another man's wife, and of course it wasn't exactly a good thing, but it did take, it did take some balls, in my humble opinion.
1: Well, I don't think that's how a Greek would look at it. I okay. mean, we might look at it that way, but uh, they think that men who are too interested in women are uh, actually effeminate, which is the opposite of how we think nowadays. They have a very strong general intellectual and cultural principle that similar things are attracted to each other. So a man who is interested in women is womanly. I know that seems really illogical to modern ways of thinking, but that's a common pattern in Greek thought.
0: And I want to move to Helen in the last moments of the Iliad in Book 24. I know I'm skipping way ahead, but I think it's relevant because, in a sense, Homer does give her the last word, Of course, Prime technically has the last words of dialogue, but Helen still has the last real word. I'm going to get up to the passage, and I'll read it out for my listeners. Hector, far dearest to my heart of all my husband's brothers, too true. My husband is Alexandros of godlike beauty, who led me to Troy. Would that I had died before, for this is now the twentieth year for me since I set out from there and forsook my fatherland. But never yet did I hear a harsh or abusive word from you. But if someone else would revile me in these halls, or one of my husband's brothers, or his sisters, or one of my fine-robed sisters-in-law, or my husband's mother, but my husband's father was like a kind father always, you with soothing words would restrain them with your gentle nature and kind speech. Therefore I weep grieving at heart for you and for me ill-fated together, For no longer is there anyone else in broad Troy to be kind or friend to me, but all shudder at me. So she spoke, crying, and in response all the great multitude moaned.
1: Yes, it's a really striking ending for the great epic that after, you know, hell on the side, it is in large part a poem of masculinity, a a poem of battle and warfare, and yet it ends with the voices of women. And that's just part of a larger picture in which one reason the Homeric picture of war is so powerful is because it does show us the cost to the non-combatants, the women, the children, the old. And the fact that Helen herself gets the last word is particularly interesting. When she talks about how Hector was always kind to her, that takes us back to something that, uh, a passage that you read out earlier, where um, he comes in, uh, I think you quoted this passage, where Hector comes in, and um, Helen, yes, you did, Helen says, I wish I had been the wife of a better man. Now, that, some people would interpret that as kind of flirting with Hector, saying, you are so awesome compared to my lame-ass loser husband Paris, Um, and a, a way of kind of winning over Hector, And if you go back to what I was saying earlier about uh, women who put themselves down being appealing to men, it's interesting that the two most important and powerful men in Troy, namely uh, Priam and Hector, are both very nice to Helen. In other words, her ways of talking, as you said, she's a powerful user of discourse, and her ways of talking succeed in winning over powerful men uh, and gaining their sympathy. We don't hear about her relationships to women in the same way. In fact, there are a few hints that the women are not so happy with Helen, as you might expect. When she leaves the battlements of Troy in Book 3, uh, she says that if she goes to sleep with Paris, the, other, the Trojan women will blame her. And you can see why they would blame her for starting this war. But my point is that her mode of discourse is adapted to winning the approval of men. And that is one way in which women can exercise power uh, when they are in a subordinate role like that compared to men.
0: And I now want to talk about why Helen might even want to leave Sparta. Of course, in some renditions, she was kidnapped against her will, and the old Nestor basically takes that interpretation and suggests a rape-for-rape retributive policy for the Achaean warriors to rape children women in response for Helen's rape. But then Helen implies that she willingly left her Fa- husband and her own daughter to go with this seductive man.
1: Yes, I think uh, the fact she herself says that she did did it on purpose, even though she feels terrible about it, is very important. Because if she thinks it was her fault, who are we to disagree? The One line you refer to, which was um, Nestor saying that we're taking vengeance for her screams as she was dragged away, uh, that's First of all, it's ambiguous. It's not quite clear it means that. But even if it does mean that, he is a Greek warrior on the battlefield, you know, encouraging his fellow Greeks, saying, we have to rescue our stolen queen. He's not thinking about Helen's subjectivity or her motivation. And in fact, it's better for the Greeks if she was really kidnapped, because then it looks um, it's less embarrassing, basically. Uh, if she was seduced, then their queen is a slut by their standards. if she was kidnapped, then she's innocent and a worthy woman to be restored to the Greeks. So I don't think we need to put too much on what he says. I do think for the story of Helen generally, it's very important that she essentially always goes on purpose. She's never simply kidnapped. I think that if she were, that would undermine the essence of her story. The essence of her story is that beautiful women are trouble. And they're trouble not just because somebody might steal them. They're trouble because they have their own desires. And a beautiful woman has various ways of getting what she wants. And what she wants might be to walk out the door and not come back. And that is a scary prospect. So the fact that she has the agency, even if it's highly constrained, which female agency was, but she does, ultimately women do have the choice to behave in ways that can be destructive to the family and their role in society and their marriage, and that's a terrifying prospect. And that is the essence of Helen, in my view.
0: And since we've talked about the Iliad, I want to mention that Achilles, at one point, I think he curses out Helen, not directly, but of course he curses her out because it's for her sake that they're fighting this war which he hates. So what do you think of that?
1: He calls her, the Greek word is d'ane, which means that she makes you shudder. And that's not really about Helen's agency. It's not saying, it's not scolding her. It's saying she's a scary and, in a way, awe-inspiring phenomenon. And that connects back to what we were talking about earlier, that Helen and Achilles have a lot in common, because he is a scary and awe-inspiring phenomenon as well. Uh, Even the fact that Helen is so beautiful is a little scary, because Supreme Beauty is is divine, and divinity is powerful. And remember, of course, her father is Zeus. So I take Achilles to be acknowledging her scary awesomeness as the most beautiful woman in the world, who's also the daughter of a god, and not so much saying um, that she's a bad woman. But even if he were saying she's a bad woman, then he would be agreeing with her, because she thinks that about herself.
0: And which brings me to segue into Odyssey because recently Emily Wilson published a translation of the Odyssey which stripped down some of the more sexist-sounding language in other translations done by men. And, of course, I wonder if Achilles being interpreted as cursing out Helen might be something like that.
1: How do you mean? You mean that translators might have taken it in a different way? Yeah. I'm not sure. I would have to look at all the different translations uh, to see, but that's perfectly possible. Okay. Um, translations, as you know, can be a little misleading. Um, in, uh, in the Iliad, Helen, when she blames herself, she calls herself uh, a dog, dog face, kunopidos. And that's often translated as bitch, which is literally a means that, female dog. But in modern English, a bitch is somebody who's like just mean-spirited or whatever. Um, in ancient Greek, it implies somebody who's out of control, doesn't control or regulate their feelings, especially a woman who is giving way to her sexual impulses. So that's why other translators translate it as slut. So it, it means bitch, but it also means slut. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah, and Caroline Alexander, whose translation I read from, translates it as dog-faced or dog-eyed, which it might seem a little strange, but I would generally side with that translation.
1: And- I would too. I don't know that translation. But in general, my attitude towards translation is I prefer to keep some of the, the strangeness of the culture that you're translating and not try and smooth it out and make it into all sound like um, you know, modern ways of thinking. But that's a choice, a translator's choice.
0: Okay. Right. And, and now I come to the Odyssey where Helen and Menelaus are reunited I want to make a short note that Helen is basically married three times. She's married first to Menelaus, then to Paris, then briefly to Paris's brother Deiphobus, and then she's back to ground one with Menelaus. And in the Odyssey, Helen herself says, they, being the Greek warriors, they made my face the cause that hounded them. This is Emily Wilson's translation that I'm reading from. Which, sorry, is, which
1: passage is this? Where is this? This is
0: in Book 4 when Telemachus is visiting Sparta.
1: Right, okay. And then Helen is speaking?
0: Yes. And then she's um, depicted. Go ahead. And then she's depicted as someone who has this control over drugs and medicines, which, in some ways, is a little scarier than in the Odyssey, but at the same time, uh, scarier than in the Iliad. But doesn't have the Iliad's own resonant power.
1: Yes, um, I actually love the Helen of the Odyssey because we see more of her spooky side. In the Iliad, we know she's the daughter of Zeus, and we know that her beauty is so great that it's terrifying. Um, and she looks like a goddess. But in the Odyssey, she gets up to no good a couple of times. Um, She spikes the wine, as you said, with a drug that she got from Egypt, and Egypt is kind of a spooky place in Greek thinking. And um, the wine deadens the emotions. And why is that a good thing? It's a good thing because everybody is so upset and sad about the Trojan War and all the people that died. So she's essentially... Um, erasing the negative emotions that her own behavior has caused. So the drug is a kind of symbolic expression of her power over men, which we've seen expressed in other ways uh, through her beauty and through her discourse. The other great passage in the Odyssey is in Book 4, when she's telling a narrative, uh, and, and she and Menelaus both tell stories about what happened during the Trojan War. And Menelaus tells a story about the Trojan horse. Uh, The Trojan horse is already inside Troy, and they're waiting for night so the men can jump out and and destroy Troy. And Helen comes down to where the horse is and walks around it in a magical kind of way. Um, She touches it. She walks three times. These are signs of uh, attempt to exercise a magic spell. But most strikingly, she starts to imitate the voices of all the men in the horse. Um, sorry, the voices of their wives. So that to each man in the horse, it sounds like his own wife is calling him. Now, that's obviously magic, because they're at Troy. They know their wives aren't there, but they all want to jump out. Uh, she almost lures them to jump out of the horse and destroy the whole plot involving the Trojan horse. So that shows her as magic and threatening, And very doubtful in her allegiance, it looks like, although she may speak about how she's a dog face and she's ashamed of herself, you really can't trust her when push comes to shove, Uh, which is part of what makes her disturbing. And it's expressed again in the Odyssey by uh, portraying her as someone who has control of mysterious magic spells and medicines.
0: And in the Odyssey, that's depicted in the larger context about women's faithfulness or unfaithfulness. She's basically in good company, so to speak, with her unfaithful sister, Clytemnestra, who outright kills her husband. That's uh, right. And then, of course, she says to Telemachus, as Telemachus is leaving back for Ithaca, remember Helen on your wedding day.
1: Yes. (laughs) She actually gives him a gift for the bride to wear on her wedding day. Which sounds like a bit of a dodgy gift. Um, the relationship between Clytemnestra and, and Helen is an interesting one. A lot of people don't even realize that they're half- sisters. The difference being that Clytemnestra's mother is they're both they they both have the same human mother, but Helen has Zeus as her father, so Clytemnestra is all human. But they are two different kind of opposed models of what it is to be a bad woman. Helen is the kind of bad woman who can seduce anybody and who is uh, full of what the Greeks would consider excessive sexual desire, Clytemnestra is the kind of bad woman who stops behaving like a woman and behaves the way that they think a man should behave, i.e., picks up an axe and decapitates her husband. But both of them, in their own way, are destructive to the power of men, the uh, patriarchal family.
0: And then we bring up the larger moral question, I think. Is some of that destructiveness a good thing, or is it a bad thing, or is it much more complex than we can ever hope to answer?
1: Well, the usual answer to most questions is it's really complicated. (laughs) Um, But how could that destructiveness be a good thing? What did you mean by that?
0: I mean, if the patriarchal system that they're fighting against is so problematic, then wouldn't it seem legitimate to at least lash out back against it? I mean, then again... Oh,
1: yeah. I see what you mean, yeah. Um, Well, it's true. One reason that these works, uh, not just that Homer, but other works of of Greek literature, have been so effective in modern times, I'm thinking particularly of tragedies here, is because they do speak to uh, the feelings of women under patriarchy. Obviously, our patriarchy is not the Greek patriarchy, thank goodness. But women still have a lot to endure, and the plays where women express their feelings uh, towards men in in Greek antiquity become a vehicle for women now. So you can take somebody like Clytemnestra, who kills her husband. It doesn't mean that everybody wants to kill their husband, but when they see this ancient Greek figure standing up against this um, patriarchal system that she is embedded in, people want to cheer her. They do. And I do think that's a positive. That said, we need to bear in mind that these dramas were all composed by men for a primarily male audience, and the actors performing the parts for all men. A lot of the so-called bad women in Greek mythology are creations of men's fears. So from that point of view, when somebody like Clytemnestra Friedem- takes her revenge on the patriarchy, We can also see that as an expression of how the fears that Greek men felt about women. It's not a sign of real women actually standing up for uh, their own equality.
0: And since you mentioned Clytemnestra, I want to bring up the ancient Greek tragedies. How does Helen usually fare in those? Because at least we have two extant Greek tragedies that are dedicated to her in any major way. There is Euripides' tragedies, the Trojan women and there's a, tra- like a quasi-tragedy, not really tragedy, which is titled Helen.
1: Yes, she shows up a lot in, in tragedies, generally, and usually, as you say, she's, she's mostly in Euripides. She's not in Sophocles at all. Um, and in Euripides' plays about the Trojan War, which there are, there are several, most of the other characters just trash her. When she's mentioned, she's this evil, slutty bitch who caused the Trojan War. But as you just said, she becomes a significant presence in some of Euripides' plays. He was probably the first person to put her on the tragic stage as a character. And the, the first time that happened was in his play, The Trojan Women, which incidentally gets performed a lot nowadays. It's a really grim play about the misery caused for women by war. And you can probably think of reasons why it would be of contemporary interest. Anyway, all the other women... They're all the women of Troy. Troy has been sacked. The city is burning in the background. And they're, they're dressed as slaves. They are w- w- wailing and lamenting. They are being handed over to slave masters. And then Helen comes in, and she sashays in. She's beautifully dressed. And um, she convinces Menelaus not to kill her in revenge. So this is like the ultimate bad Helen. And we talked about her getting in, uh, in the Iliad about how she has power with words, and we see that to the max in Euripides' Trojan Women, where she adopts the speech patterns of uh, contemporary thinkers called the sophists, who were very uh, interested in manipulative rhetoric, and so we see her taking on that persona. And um, so that's a good example of how equality can be either good or bad, uh, a, Power with language, power with discourse, persuasion is something that's very valuable and important in the Athenian democracy especially. But when you put it in the wrong hands, you can see somebody like Helen using her power with language to excuse herself for something that everybody else agrees is really terrible behavior. So that's the bad Helen. And she may be bad, but she looks good, and that's really important too. She's she's still got her beauty this second play is Euripides Helen, which is obviously all about her, and that's a whole different story. This story goes back to a poet called Stesichorus, and this is, this is a great story, but we don't actually have much of his work. But there's an anecdote that says that he told the story of the Trojan War, and Helen appeared to him, by the way, she's a goddess now, and um, blinded him, and essentially said that he would not get his sight back unless he retracted the story about how she was guilty of going to Troy. So he wrote a new poem called The Palinode, which we only have a couple of words of it left, and it says, you did not go to Troy. Hmm. Uh, basically, withdrawing the Homeric story. So this is a different way of making Helen seem innocent. Just saying she didn't even go in the first place. And... Um, Euripides Helen follows that same model. So if she didn't go to Troy, what started the war? Well, the answer is that, of course, the gods are responsible for everything. They made a fake Helen, her double, which is called the Adolon in Greek, and and that went to Troy. It looks exactly like her. It is essentially Helen, but not Helen. And it goes to Troy, and it causes the war. And meanwhile, Helen herself, the real Helen, is in Egypt. Uh, remember I talked about her drugs that she got from Egypt and the Odyssey? She has multiple connections with Egypt, which is a kind of symbolic other for the ancient Greeks. It stands for um, spooky, mysterious, um, ancient, by their standards, ancient wisdom, and so on. So there she is in Egypt, and Menelaus comes along. He's on his way home from the Trojan War, and he thinks he's got Helen with him, but it's really the Eidolon, Helen's double. And so there's all this comic stuff in the play about two Helens. Now, when you were introducing it, you said that it's not really a tragedy. And that's certainly true by the standards of the way we think about uh, what a tragedy is. In ancient terms, it's a tragedy because it was performed in the, in the uh, tragic competition at the dramatic festival. But by modern standards, it's actually a, really a forebear of various kinds of romantic comedy. She finally, of course, gets reunited with Menelaus, and in this version, uh, they are totally devoted and loving, or she is a completely loving and devoted and faithful wife, and at the end, they sail off home and live happily ever after, supposedly. So, as you can see, that's dramatically different. It's a good example of how Helen's, what she did, the thing she did going off to Troy, becomes a kind of lightning rod for attitudes, about women and sexuality and marriage. And you can spin that in lots and lots of different ways. But if you want to make Helen innocent, you have to say she didn't go to Troy. That's why I, I was saying earlier that uh, it's, I think it's essential to her story that when she went, she went deliberately. She wasn't kidnapped. So Euripides and stesichorus they don't defend her by saying, oh, it's not her fault she was kidnapped. They, say, they they defend her by saying, she didn't
0: even go. So simply like, just went to Egypt.
1: Yeah, the gods took her to Egypt.
0: <laughs> yeah, and speaking of which, it almost comes to light how great Homer's poems are because they're in some ways the first and the best to deal with the Helen story. And of course, they're superlative in many ways even compared to the other ancient Greek tragedies because... They generally have a more nuanced portrait of things, both in the Iliad and the Odyssey, than even some of the later Greek tragedies tend to have. That's how I perceive it.
1: Well, I hate to make generalizations. Uh, we only have a small handful of the tragedies and so on. Um, and, of course, the tra- tragedians and all Greek poets were heavily influenced by Homer. So there's a way in which Homer is the first, and, uh, and also the longest. Those poems are very long and, as you say, very complex. And it's certainly true... That I wouldn't want to say this is true of all characters, that they become simplified, but I think it's true that Helen of the Iliad and the Odyssey is, especially if you put the two together, is extremely complex and multifaceted character. And in a way, what you see happening over the subsequent centuries is various aspects of that complex persona are drawn upon. So she can become the evil slut, she can become the victim, um, and so on. And so I think you're right that her presentation does tend to become less nuanced over time. But I'm not going to go along with generalizations about Greek tragedy being less nuanced because it has its own ways in which it uh, is extremely nuanced as well, maybe not in regard to this
0: character. And speaking of like the ways that Helen has appeared in various Greek stories, I want to know if you know anything much about how she's appeared in the post-antiquity. Like in the Renaissance, she's definitely depicted in the play Troilus and Cressida as this very negative image because Shakespeare is depicting her very cynically and through the lens of a world wo- worldview where war and honor and chivalry and love are all worthless and terrible. And the character Thersites in that play basically says all the arguments is a whore and a cuckold.
1: Yeah, I actually um, don't know that much about the intervening tradition because H- Helen has been such a heavily used character. I would have to know about the whole of the history of not just English but other literatures that, that, that have um, descended from, uh, from the Greeks. For instance, um, in the Middle Ages, the Trojan War was used uh, by many European countries as a story of their own origins. That goes back to Aeneas. Uh, leaving Troy and going to Rome and founding Rome. So this story is everywhere. So I can't really comment uh, with any expertise on the intervening period. Um, I do have uh, some interest in contemporary popular culture because I believe that as a modern person, I'm, uh, I would have some expertise in that. So I am interested. What I'm ri- doing right now is I'm writing a book about Helen of Troy in the movies. So um, that's something that I, could, I could certainly speak about.
0: Yeah, about Helen of Troy in the movies, I haven't seen the whole of the movie Troy, but I am familiar with how she appears in it. Basically, for listeners, I'm going to make a few spoilers. She's depicted as very unhappy in her marriage, and then this Paris comes in, and then she kind of goes along, and then near the end, she basically escapes with Paris and the rest of the Trojan survivors who escape the burning city. And then there's this BBC slash Netflix TV series called Troy, Fall of a City. It's more of a miniseries, actually, where Helen is also depicted as not generally liking her marriage for the most part. And so she goes back to Troy with Paris and she's depicted as an independent woman, and then there's a lot of suspicion about her reputation, but there are also those women who say, what you did was brave, you're now Helen of Troy. And then near the end, she goes back to Menelaus, hoping that if she goes back, he won't burn the city. Oh, don't to tell
1: gra- me, I haven't seen the end.
0: Oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, I recommend you see it, even if it's not that great, it's worth looking into, because in many ways, the miniseries does a good job, and other times I think it oversimplifies, but I think it's worth seeing at least once.
1: Yes, I've got two episodes left to go. I've been watching it with a group of, of friends and students and we're uh, meeting soon for the last two episodes. Um, I actually uh, I hated the Helen in Troy, which is one of the things that got me interested in the presentation of Helen in modern media because I thought there were so many things to hate about her, uh, mostly because uh, she lacks that dimension of awesome scariness and Potentially magical power and connection to the gods that I was talking about in, in connection with Homer, and in Troy, the movie Troy, Peterson's Troy, she's just kind of this pathetic. Uh, what can I say? Pathetic is the right word.
0: Overgrown teenager. Um,
1: pathetic, oppressed young woman. Uh, but the the miniseries, I actually, uh, I haven't got to the end yet, as I said, but in the earlier part, I like the presentation of Helen. People online have been complaining that she's not beautiful enough, but you can never be beautiful enough for that role. So what they do, I like, which is they give her these weird clothes when she's at Sparta, particularly. Um, Remember those strange feathery costumes? Um, Which are indicators of weirdness and specialness. And they actually, the miniseries, that, that miniseries, there's another one from 2003, but that miniseries, really plays down the beauty, the most beautiful woman in the world stuff. It's just Paris thinks she is. Um, But they mark her as special by dressing her in an exotic way, and that's something that goes back to Greek antiquity, the idea that female beauty is expressed through your clothing and your jewelry. It marks you, if you're beautifully dressed or elaborately dressed, it marks you as somebody who's valuable and special, and it enhances your beauty or even creates your beauty. So I, I like that aspect of her a lot.
0: And then, of course, it plays up the suspicions. I mean, the miniseries plays up the suspicions that the rest of the Trojans have. And for my listeners, I don't want to spoil too much, but apparently Helen seems to have some indirect connection to some murder of some person. And that's about it. I That's about all I can say for my listeners. I'd recommend they go see the miniseries on Netflix.
1: Yeah, that's another thing that I liked about the miniseries is that it makes Helen, untrustworthy, not necessarily in herself, but in the eyes of others. Uh, I mentioned that one passage in the Iliad where Aphrodite is threatening her and telling her to go sleep with Paris, and she says, the other women will all get mad at me, they will reproach me. And in the this BBC miniseries is the only version I've seen which kind of picks that up and goes with it, and presents Helen as somebody a little bit not quite reliable. She's all sneaky. She's got connections with the other side. People aren't 100% certain which side she's on. And that is one of the things that makes her a more complex character. Most modern movie versions, it's a simple romance. Uh, But this one gives her that extra uh, dimension of character. So I did like that aspect.
0: I hope you are able to enjoy the other two episodes because it does touch on some of the other elements, including her apparent desire to go back to the Greeks, which is alluded to in Homer.
1: Yes, and that's very unusual. So that's actually the, the part that I was wondering about the ending, which is whether she would go back. Um, because that's really hard to do if you're taking a standard romantic narrative. Of course, that is what happens in the ancient myths. She goes back home with Menelaus. But they don't exactly live happily ever after, because uh, that's why she needs to drug everybody's wine, because they're all so miserable. Um, but the modern romantic pattern has got to be, uh, you know, boy meets girl, and if the boy and girl are Paris and Helen, it's supposed to be true love that lasts forever, and, <clears throat> um, and they're never supposed to fight, and they're never supposed to... She's not supposed to have contempt for him. Um, and so some of... There are various versions, but, but uh, the Troy movie, for instance, Peterson's Troy... There's actually uncertainty at the end about whether Paris and Helen get away together. She certainly does not go back with Menelaus. So, facing the fact that she goes back with Menelaus is is a really interesting dimension and I look forward to seeing how they treat that.
0: Did they ever, I mean, did Helen and Paris ever really love each other? I mean, of course, this is a very modern question with all the loaded Presuppositions behind that, but in the Iliad, it comes off as Helen and Paris do fight with each other, and Helen does have a kind of contempt for him, but at the same time, she does have the sexual desire and maybe even liking, likes him in some sense.
1: Yes, as you say, it's a modern question, um, <clears throat> excuse me, because um, the, the modern word love is a bit confusing, it can mean lots and lots of different things. Um, you can love your cat. You can love your mother.
0: I can love can the love Odyssey and Iliad.
1: Huh?
0: I can love the Odyssey yeah. and Iliad.
1: You certainly can. Um, but the Greek word is eros. Well, there are, there's more than one Greek word for love, but what attracts a man to a woman and vice versa, or a man to a man and vice versa, is or a woman to a woman and vice versa is eros, which is erotic passion, sexual passion, and that is what. And Aphrodite is the goddess of that. And so when they call Aphrodite the goddess of love, when people say that, that's, that's soft-peddling it a little bit. She is a troublemaker and the goddess of erotic passion, and she makes people fall in love with each other erotically, regardless of whether they're married to somebody else or whatever. That's what she does. So it actually is quite believable in modern terms that somebody might be carried away with sexual passion and do something stupid, and then really regret it and get mad at the guy and think he's not worth it, but still be sexually attracted to him, which is what happens in Book Three of the Iliad. So I do think it's quite comprehensible in modern terms, but that version is never used in modern um, renditions because it violates the contemporary ideology of romantic love.
0: And of course, in Troy, Fall of a City, it's basically a given that Helen truly appreciates Paris, even flaws and all. And Paris is sort yeah. of ennobled in that version compared to Troy, at least. And thus, in some ways, he approximates the portrait in the Iliad, which Paris is depicted as in some ways a capable warrior, though Paris, of course, is less of a fighter in the miniseries than he was in the poem.
1: Yes, uh, and in that sense, it's definitely a, uh, sounds like a more nuanced treatment of Paris, though I haven't seen it all yet. Um, most previous versions that I know of, sorry, um, he's either the total coward, like in Troy, or more often, he is made into the romantic hero. So there's a 1956 movie, uh, Hollywood Epic, and there's a 2003 um, TV miniseries. And Paris essentially becomes, he's the romantic love interest, but he's also like a heroic male character uh, who does great exploits and um, can beat Hector in battle and stuff like that. Um, So those are usually the two different directions that that Paris gets taken, and I think it would be really interesting to see one that combines elements of both.
0: And then before we began the interview officially, you said to me that you preferred the Iliad over the Odyssey. Would you like to explain to my listeners why you prefer the Iliad? I have my own reasons for it, of course.
1: <laughs> well, you will also recall that I was very reluctant to answer the question. Um, uh, I really don't like putting myself in one camp or the other because I love don't. them both. Um, The Odyssey has a great deal to offer from the point of view of um, gender studies and interest in um, um, the role of women, a variety of different female characters are portrayed. It also has lots of just wonderful, good stories. Uh, And it uh, addresses aspects that to many people nowadays, as well as in antiquity, would seem of more interest to women, like the status of the family. But there's something about the Iliad, the visceral confrontation with death. The, the, it's really about human mortality, the fact that we are going to die. And in what situation do you put your life on the line and take that risk, risk everything? Uh, we might not agree with the reasons why the warriors do it in the Iliad, especially the Greek warriors. My students typically just want them all to pack up and go home. So you don't have to agree with their reasons, but the poem as a whole is confronting that that bright line between life and death. And I think that's at bottom what makes it so powerful for me.
0: And one of my personal reasons for preferring the Iliad is, in many ways, it seems more nuanced in its moral compass than the Odyssey. Of course, the Odyssey is much more nuanced than I initially gave it credit for, as Emily Wilson demonstrated in her translation and introduction and commentary. But the Iliad, the complexity of morality, and how we morally judge either Trojan or Greek its definitely more evident. Of course, neither Trojan nor Greek is exactly bad, and there's no real bad guys. Even thersites he's more just unpleasant than really bad, by any modern standards. The Odyssey, by contrast, seems to depict the Cyclops as bad or at least that's how we read it, simplifying it, and the suitors as almost unequivocally bad. And and of course, I can expand even more that almost almost the maids or the female slaves as almost unequivocally bad and deserving of death. Of course, the Homeric poem isn't exactly sure on that point, but Telemachus is for definitely wanting their death.
1: Yeah, um... I think I could push back a little on some of those things. Uh, I, I think you can make a case for the Cyclops. <laughs> I mean, no, okay, you're not supposed to eat people, that's true. But Odysseus is intruding. I mean, I don't think he's uh, I a morally do agree. He clear is character. Intruding.
0: I, think, I think he is intruding, of course.
1: I don't think he's a morally clear-cut character. Uh, and I agree. One thing too. that both the poems are about is Xenia: how do you treat strangers or guests? Uh, in the Iliad, uh, it's the justification such as it is for going out to Troy is that Paris violated Xenia, the code that binds host and guest, and you do not seduce your host's wife. Uh, In the Odyssey, that theme is much more evident. I mean, it's much more to the front because we see Odysseus traveling and encountering all different kinds of people. So I'm not disagreeing with you that the Cyclops is bad, but um, I do think that... the whole poem as a whole is not um, so simple ethically as it, as it might sometimes seem because of the uh, you know the ogres and the villains and so on.
0: Agreed, And um, I said I, I think it was more complex than I initially gave it credit for.
1: Uh-huh. And the, and the Iliad, I think one of the things that makes it most powerful, and this is true of a lot of tragedy and other Greek texts as well,, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the enemy, are treated with such humanity. If you, if you refer to the Iliad as being an, the nationalist Greek epic, that doesn't fit. It is the great literary epic of Greece, but if you look at what comes out of it, the, even in Homer, a lot of people like the Trojans much better. My students like the Trojans better. The Trojans are presented more like the good guys. And how many national epics are there where your your enemy is treated as by the poet, as a more human figure than yourself, the Greeks. And that's a central reason for its power, I think. And it's also very evident in the traditions that have grown out of it. The Trojans, as I mentioned earlier, became the founding fathers or mothers or whatever of, um, of much of modern Europe. And that's because even in Homer, we see the seeds of that, that they are uh, in many ways more, for lack of a better word, more likable than the Greeks. And people feel that they're more human and and more like us.
0: And in many instances, Homer mentions that this Trojan warrior or that Trojan warrior was living with his family, and then he went to war and then some Greek dude killed him, and now he won't go back to his family to help them out or give them delight or whatnot. And then there are, of course, like, there's a line in Book 20, I believe, where... I think the gods say that the line of Dardanos must survive so Aeneas will be spared because Aeneas was good and just and pious. And mm-hmm. of course that's picked up much more explicitly in the Aeneid, the Latin epic.
1: Right. Uh, the theme, that theme in the Iliad that you just referred to uh, is m- most stark in the case of Hector and Andromache, this famous scene where he, he says farewell to her on the walls of Troy, and the way the poem's set up, it's like that is their last farewell. And um, she begs him not to go and fight because of all the suffering that will follow for her and their child. <clears throat> but that is the tragedy of Hector. He can't, he has to fight, because otherwise Troy will be destroyed. But if he fights, he will likely die, as he does, and his wife and child will, his wife will go into slavery, and his child is going to get killed. So that conflict between um, the tension between a, particularly a man's obligations towards his family and towards the larger, um, the army, the city, the larger culture, is, is most starkly presented in the case of Hector. But as you mentioned, it is referred to for many, uh, many of the warriors, including the Greeks. They'll talk about Greek warriors who get killed, and, and they'll say, he just got married, and he'll never get home to see his wife or the new baby or whatever. So they're like little epitaphs. Which remind us that even in a poem that involves the slaughter of thousands of warriors, each one is a human who has a little uh, biography, a little life of their own to remind us that it's not just mindless slaughter of uh, automata. That there is a tragedy, a little tiny tragedy built in for each of these warriors that gets killed.
0: Yeah, and I think a little bit of that is reflected, interestingly enough, in the Odyssey. In Book 24, there is Eupiathes, the father of one of the slain suitors, who's crying, and it's emphasized that he's crying as he's speaking about how Odysseus like, got rid of all his men and killed all these suitors, and then he's going to get revenge on behalf of all the people who have been hurt by this causer of pain. That's what Odysseus' name means.
1: That's right. Um, there's always a price. There's always a price for warfare and violence, even when it's the right thing to do. There's always a price to be paid, and usually some innocent people are going to suffer. Uh, the revenge of a disuse is disturbing at the end of the uh, Odyssey.
0: Well, I agree. Like you
1: say, it's set up as being, as being the right thing, but it is still troubling.
0: And I think Homer does, in fact, allow us to be disturbed by it. And there is, like, an instance where the suitor says that we were just, like, trying to— be nice, and then only this main culprit was the dead, and so please don't kill us. But then, of course, Odysseus kills every single one of the suitors. And the reason I think that aggression from Helen to all these stuff stuff that is not about Helen is because Helen is not just about herself, but is about everything that she represents, that she's a part of.
1: That's right, and she is ultimately the cause of everything that happens in the Odyssey as well as the Iliad. Uh, If she had not eloped, then Odysseus would not have gone to war, and Penelope would not have been alone. So uh, her character in the Odyssey is a kind of counterpoint to Penelope, who of course is the central female character, but Helen is there uh, in the background, as is Clytemnestra, the other example of a bad woman, as I say, in counterpoint to, to Penelope. And don't forget that Penelope kind of leads on the suitors a bit. Do you remember that scene where she appears looking all beautiful and... They give her wedding gifts, <laughs> and afterwards um, Odysseus says, oh, that was really smart. You got a lot of good stuff out of them. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's a case to be made for the suitors as well. It's not uh, its not simply black and white. They're not, as you just pointed out, they're not all equally bad.
0: Of course, except for the part where they try to kill Telemachus, but then again, of course, there's much more to be said on all these fronts. And now I want to yes. bring it back to Achilles, because the, in the Iliad, Achilles and in some sense, set up as the cause for the most protracted fighting in the Trojan War. And like, Ach- and like Achilles, Helen is basically a cause that brings in so many effects that were in many ways unintentional, some ways intended. But Helen and Achilles are, in a sense, a match made for each other that was unmatched in heaven, be- yeah. or, or hell, because <laughs> they're the causes of the events, They're like the free agents, in a sense. They're like the poets, the people who not only are written about, but who, in effect, write and sing.
1: Yes, and there's a strong tradition of Helen being associated with that. uh, In Isocrates, whom nobody ever reads because it's kind of lunatic, but he has this long um, speech about Helen. But he essentially makes her dictate the Iliad, uh, like she is the muse for Homer. Uh, There's a long tradition of her being associated... Uh, another example would be the Stesikers story that I told you, where she interferes with the poet and says, hey, don't tell a story like that. Tell it like this. Um, so that co- tradition continues, as does the idea that Achilles and Helen are the double cause of the Trojan war. Um, it, the war. For the war to take place, and of course Zeus wanted it to take place to reduce the human population or whatever, um, and they are the joint necessary causes. Helen had to be the most beautiful woman in the world, and that's why Zeus produced her. And Achilles had to be the greatest warrior in order to do all the slaughter. Once again, we see them as a kind of, as a gendered couple. The the power of female beauty, the power of male strength, those two things together are what caused the war.
0: And in Troy, Fall of a City, at one point Achilles and Helen are speaking to each other, and in the Iliad, we never see them together in the same scene, perhaps because they're so grand and so right for each other that they can't paradoxically be together. But in Troy, Fall of the City, they're have, they share a scene together where it basically is... Helen says, Achilles, you were a match for me at one point, but now you are not.
1: Yeah. And the traditional the B- story of the courtship of Helen, Greek kings come from all over the, the Greek world... To, because she, because of her reputation as the most beautiful woman. And they all want to marry her. But we're told by Hesiod, who recounts the story, that Achilles was too young, so he wasn't there. So okay. even in the earliest myths, we've got to explain why Achilles and Helen did not get together. Okay. It, clearly, the suggestion is that they would have been uh, a match for each other. Uh, Troy, Fall of a City, shows a lot more fluidity between the two sides in the war. We see a lot more coming and going. And I can see why they did that for dramatic purposes. But um, in the Iliad, you know, they're on different sides of, of the wall. So how would they even get together? There is a story, though a very obscure story, that Achilles asked his mom, Thetis, to get him in so he could meet Helen. <laughs> so there are all these little hints in the ancient tradition uh, connecting the two of them, but there's never a straightforward version where um, where they do get together, except in the afterlife. Uh, which is also really interesting. Um, they were both cult heroes in the afterlife, which means they would get worshipped in, um, in various ways. And there are traditions that Helen and Achilles are kind of retired together as, as, as uh, cult heroes, as a couple. So they can get together, but only in like a dream world or the next life.
0: It's almost like Heathcliff and Catherine Earnshaw, but a little different. And I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's been a brilliant talk. You're a brilliant scholar who has a lot of great insights. And we're talking about really brilliant subjects. Homer is the most brilliant of poets. Of course, Shakespeare is greater in my opinion, but Homer is just so brilliant we can't stop talking about him. There's still so much to talk about.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation.
0: So for my listeners, in the next three weeks I will not be recording. We will be returning on August 9th.